Welcome to Think to Film Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss Hayao Miyazaki's 2004 anime film, Howl's Moving Castle. Now let's change into a giant demon bird and take on some airships. our final episode on our coverage of Howl's Moving Castle. To finish it out, we are going to do the 2004 anime film by Hayao Miyazaki. It's also Thanksgiving time, so happy Thanksgiving, and uh, happy Thanksgiving to you, Luke. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving to you and our listeners. This movie is a nice family fun kind of thing that I think is appropriate for the holiday. It's about a found family, right? Uh, A popular trope that I think always warms the heart. And the movie, to me, leaned even more heavily into that than than even the book did. Yeah, and it's it, it is a common trope for the the family to be because it's everybody has a family, you know, in one way or another, whether it's biological or not. And something that Miyazaki does very well, which is Hayao Miyazaki directed this film, and it's based on the the novel that we covered by Diana Wynne Jones. And, you know, he kind of, he made it his own by putting his own spin on it in, in some ways. But he, I feel like what Hayao Miyazaki does very well is he takes simple to the point storytelling elements and he he presents them in a way that you kind of aren't expecting. And he does it in a way that has such artistic mastery around it that it's it's almost, I mean, his films are almost universally loved. I don't, I've never met someone who doesn't like one of his films. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, specifically found families, I think, appeal to people because a constructed family in some ways can be even more powerful than the one you're born into because you get to choose that new family, right? But a new family that you have this really strong tie to is something everyone can appreciate and uh, want to have in their life. And I think you know, a lot of times people find this stuff through like fandoms, right? And the communities that build up around the things they love. You can start to piece together this sort of found family with your best friends or whatever that might be. And I think as viewers or readers, we we love to see that. Definitely. And and a lot of Hayao Miyazaki's films kind of lean into that. And, and there's some common themes throughout a lot of his films. Um, before we jump into like the specifics of this film, I just wanted to cover a little bit of of Hayao Miyazaki. He's the mastermind behind Studio Ghibli. He's worked closely with uh, Miramax and then uh, Disney in order to bring the films to a wider audience. Have you seen all of his films? Yeah, I've seen all of them. Uh, you know what? I've seen all except for there's like a Lupin the Third film that I haven't seen that it kind of doesn't really fall under the Ghibli banner, but it was I think he did direct it, so I haven't seen that one. I've seen only a few. (laughs) Like, I've seen this. I've seen Spirited Away, Nausicaa, Princess Mononoke, but I barely remember that one. And I think that's it. I might be forgetting one or two others I have seen, but I think that's all I've seen. I know know there's a bunch I have not seen. Yeah, there's a lot of other. Kiki's Delivery Service, Ponyo, uh, Wind Rises. Wind Rises is one I think you should definitely check out. I haven't seen any of those. So if you're a big fan of Howl's Moving Castle, which I am, 
what other Hayao Miyazaki film would you most recommend? And to me, which one that I haven't seen would you most recommend? Okay, so I know that you've seen Spirited Away. Spirited Away is the one that I'm going to recommend, whether or not you like... I mean, that's just the the film, in my opinion. That was his that was his masterpiece. Absolutely love that movie. All the rest of them are like very, very close, but that one just is in a league of its own, in my opinion. Uh, next up after that, I, I really like uh, Princess Mononoke is like right there with kind of this the themes that are in this movie. And I feel like if you like this movie, you would definitely like that one. I need to rewatch that one because I barely remember it. So I'm going to count that almost as one I haven't seen. So Hayao Miyazaki was born in Tokyo in 1941. So there was something fairly significant that happened to, to Japan in the 40s uh, from World War yeah. II. There was, there was bombs dropped on, on Japan, nuclear bombs, well, atomic bombs. He, so he grew up in the world that was kind of reacting to that, right? He was, he was a young kid and, you know, elders were probably talking about this around him. And you can kind of see that in a lot of his films. He's got a lot of like environmentally friendly messages He's got a lot of anti-war messages. What I think makes Miyazaki particularly special is his meticulousness and his work ethic and the the craftsmanship that goes into everything that he does. Uh, Those themes are absolutely present in this film, more so than the book, I would say. Uh, You can look just look at scenes where they're where Sophie's sitting out and enjoying the view and the talk about the environment and all, you know, all these beautiful scenes that show the environment. And you juxtapose that against the way he d- depicts war and how dark and explosive and, and just destructive it all is. And I think there's even a line where um, Sophie asks how are those ships uh, ours or theirs? Or, or you know, are those ours essentially like are they our country's ships? And he says, it doesn't, you know, what does it matter? It doesn't matter. So that really plays into the idea of war being bad regardless. So it's not, it's not, it doesn't matter if it's your country doing it. It's still bad. Yeah. And I don't know how much you looked into uh, kind of this film in general, but um, Miyazaki has come out on his own and people have always, always assumed that uh, this film came out in 2004 and it was kind of Miyazaki's response to the um, Iraqi invasion in 2003. And um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of that at play. And there's actually, like you were saying, there's a scene in this film where um, somebody mentions uh, in the newspaper, there's something about um, the war being over. And then somebody else comments that only a fool would believe that. And so it's kind of just the idea yeah. that like, just because a newspaper says it's over, just because somebody says it's over, it doesn't necessarily mean that we won or that things went well or that it was a good thing that we did that. Yeah, I found that part of this movie particularly topical. Um, there was definitely a propaganda element where the you know you even see flyers dropping from the airships like they used to do in World War II, and there's definitely an element of not being able to believe what your government is telling you, and not be able not you don't want to just listen to the official state record of things, um, and in a world with fake news is such a big deal these days and 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 you know news networks of you know debatable uh uh veracity for their for their stories that they put out um and credibility you know from whatever side you take that that's absolutely something that's topical right now and especially in america definitely so here at ink to film we like to compare the novels to the film so i guess we should talk about some of the things that were different from the novel and the film 
so I just wanted to say this is all going to be non-spoiler type talk, and then we will get to an eventual section where spoilers are fair game. Yeah, you're right. So if you're worried about if you yeah if you're worried about being spoiled, this is going to be fine for you. This is safe, and then eventually uh, we'll have you turn it off if if you're worried about that. If you haven't seen the movie, right? We'll let you know when spoilers are coming up. But as of now, we're going to try to stay away from those. Um, so yeah. it, as far as difference from the novel to the to the movie here. Um, there is a sort of a steampunk aesthetic, and also uh, mm. I don't know because the the author of the novel Diana Wynne Jones uh, is English, and this seems to have kind of a French um, aesthetic going on with the 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 score and the or at least in my opinion it felt like very French score and like architecture, and I believe I saw you we watched the behind the scenes I watched the behind the scenes as well as you right and they they mm-hmm. talked about that kind of how Miyazaki went out to. Uh, kind of do some research on this kind of architecture because a lot of what they do is is hand drawn and frame by frame hand drawn so yeah i mean i I think it's part of it's just him wanting to put his own spin on it i'm i was glad they included the interview with the author because as an author myself i cringe a little bit when i see you know hayao miyazaki and uh the people over at at uh, pixar you know, having this big release and talking about this film. And like, I keep thinking like nowhere in there is anyone mentioning the author's name who came up with these concepts. Um, and I can, I get a little frustrated with that, but you know, I, it's clearly I'm in a minority there because I, I am a content creator in that way. And I worry about that. Um, but I, they, they did a good job and they, they included the interview with her um, it does say it prominently when the title card appears. I took a picture of it. It does say, uh, you know, insp- or yeah, adapted by or inspired from Diana Winjo's story. I'd never noticed that before because I'm not really sure why I never noticed it. But like we, like I said in our past episodes, I didn't realize this was even a novel until until you said something about it, doing it for the podcast. So I noticed that this time that that her name is there in the title card. Yeah, and it's funny how we do that, you know, right? We don't necessarily think about that. And this podcast has changed, you know, even more so. I, I look for those now. I look for that that kind of uh, acknowledgement of a, of a different work that it's being adapted from. Uh, but yeah, like I, like I was saying, I think they did do a good job um, giving her the credit she deserves. And I like to see that interview, which we can talk more about um, at some point, I guess, or maybe at the end. Something else that I noticed in this film is the the difference in themes. Uh, because we're dealing with in her novel, it's it's kind of um, coming into your own, accepting yourself, and while also being a you know fairy tale fantasy. And it felt like here in the film, we were dealing with more of a. It was almost it felt like for me more of a romantic love story, um, war kind of story, anti-war story. Yeah, I mean, I think that's all true. And like I said, I think that's Hayao Miyazaki putting his own spin on it, you know, and, and bringing in, bringing in those themes that he's famous for and making sure that while he is adapting a work, which I don't know that he has done any other time other than this one, um, I, that may not be true, but that, as far as I understand it. And he's taking this adapted work, but he is such a he has such a clear artistic vision himself that I think he wanted to make sure he's infusing this story and making it his own. And I think all these differences are his way of doing that. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to mention before we jump into the actual story and spoilers here is the voice acting. Um, did you you watch the film in English or Japanese? Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, for sure, English. So in the English uh, uh, version of the film, we have a lot of famous voices. We have Christian Bale. We have Billy Crystal, Gene Simmons. And I just w- wanted to get your take on that because I also watched the Japanese version. And I th- I feel like there are a few voices in the American version that aren't aren't quite there. Like I felt like I got more out of the Japanese version. Was there was there any discrepancy in the voices for you? Um, so I like Christian Bale. Uh, I'm a fan of his work in general. He's not my favorite actor or anything by any stretch. As much as I, I'm glad they got this big name, I feel like he's kind of an unsteady fit for me for Hal. Um, sometimes he really he really nails it, and I think he he's perfect. But I think like especially early on, I find him jarring from the character model and the voice that Christian Bale has. Like he's he's a little bit too macho sounding, I guess is what I'm is something about it that that's striking me wrong for Hal who doesn't seem quite as gruff. You know, like I expect him to have a beard when I see, you know, when I hear Christian Bale's voice. Like there's just something that is a little off. Um, and I mean, that's going to be true for any American, you know, portraying a character who's not drawn to look American or, you know, Western or what have you. But ultimately, I think it's a, still a good fit. And he does some nice work, um, especially when I think like when he transforms. There are some times where I think he does really work. The other note I wanted to have about the voice actor is, did you notice that uh, Josh Hutch- Hutcherson plays the kid, uh, Michael? or So he's not named Michael in this. He's like... Markle. Mikhail or something, right? Markle, Markle. Yeah. Markle. He, uh, I, I, I knew, I didn't realize until I saw online that he had played that role. So, And when I saw his name, I recognized him. But I thought it was funny that he was so young and playing that, that young character. Yeah, so if you don't know, he's uh, P- Pita from Hunger Games, right? right? Famously. He actually has a new show out that I'm interested in checking out. It's like Future Man or something. And he, he, some people come from the future and take him back in time. So it's kind of a back to the future type thing. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, I thought it was funny to see him. And then if if you watch that behind the scenes footage, he's on there talking, and he is a like eight year old kid, and is it's funny to see him that young. I don't know. I thought it was pretty funny. Yeah, it, it's pretty wild. I I agree with you on the Christian Bale part. He was the he was the kind of the outlier for me because I think Billy Crystal is as Calcifer was is a standout performance, and I think Christian Bale just. Um, he did fine, you know. He did. It was it was a fine performance. He, but I don't think he brought his Christian Baleness to the role. Like I f- feel like in a lot of ways, like uh, the fighter and and American Hustle and the Machinist. Like he does these these interesting roles. I guess a lot of that is just like fluctuation weight. But it seems like he's able to really really embody those characters. And in this, it can it kind of just felt like he was just like went into a booth and was recording the lines. And then other times he was really getting into it. You know, you, you speak about standouts, and I think we'd be remiss to not mention Gene Simmons and Lauren Bacall both. I think both of them knock it out of the park. Uh, Gene Simmons playing the old Sophie. Um, that voice is just so perfect for that character model and, and for the, the role. I think she just did a great job. And then Lauren Bacall is the witch, <laughs> the witch of the waste, you know, and she doesn't have as many lines or anything. But when she's on screen and she walks into that hat shop early on, and, you know, her voice is, I don't know, it's really menacing, but uh, just really fits the character. I agree. Yeah, they're amazing. The, the, a lot of the, like I said, a lot of the cast really, really, really killed it. And, and I felt like just Christian Bale didn't pull his Christian Bale normal weight that I, that I would expect, you know. 
Um, and I will say, as far as the Japanese actors, uh, having watched a lot of Japanese subtitled anime, it's they they all did an amazing job. There's something there's something they add so much emotion in their voices a lot of the times, and and I don't know if to maybe someone has who hasn't had as much experience it might seem like they're going over the top but there's something about it that really that really sticks with me yeah you know and i haven't seen that version so i can't really speak on it but um yeah that's interesting i i did want to say the billy crystal casting i think is a little bit controversial from what i've read seems like people are hot and cold on it you know a lot of people love it a lot of people think it it really fit and then a lot of people i think think it's it's jarring almost because they can't not picture billy crystal and it's just him as a fire, like some, you know what I mean? Like he, he wasn't really acting so much as just speaking as a fire and, and yeah, as Calcifer. And I like, I get that criticism. Um, I, I, we're, I think I'm one of the few people who maybe falls somewhere in the middle. Like I, I think he's pretty good. I don't know if I'm prepared to say that he is a standout for me. I thought he did well with it, but, um, I also, I think I appreciate the, you know, that possible criticism that, he wasn't maybe acting as much as some of the other characters or other actors are. Yeah, I can see that. I don't know. He, he really fits the role for me and maybe it's just that I really enjoyed him as a kid and I have that nostalgia for the role, um, blinding me, but he, I mean, he's the voice of Mike Wazowski and, and monsters Inc. And both of those, these films came out around that same time. And, um, I think Pixar knew what they were doing when they were like, okay, kids really enjoyed Mike Wazowski. So let's, let's get Billy Crystal back for, for the English dub of Howl's Moving Castle. All right, so I think we're ready to jump into spoilers here. Uh, what we're going to do is just run through the plot, kind of talk it out. And I think we will comment a lot on things that are different from the novel. So be on the lookout for that. So it opens similarly from the book. Sophie Hatter works in a hat shop for her mother, and she has a sister, Letty, who works at a bakery. All right, before we get to that, I got I to gotta back up a little bit to the title card and the castle walking out of the mist there um i know not a lot plot wise is happening but i think that establishes a big difference for me because i can hear the sound of this castle which is like perfect to me it's like creaking and groaning and there's steam shooting out of it and it seems like a living creature and when it comes walking out of the mist on this like mountainside it's just iconic and 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 miyazaki's version of the moving castle is is a is a work of art and and uh i don't know it's just something i i I couldn't let go by without without at least mentioning it it's so funny because like word for word in my notes like verbatim wrote (laughs) down like iconic shot um like you were saying it does it does open with the there's that mist that clears with the shepherd in the field and just having it reveal how's moving castle is i mean like you say it just it is like different than the novel but a welcome difference I, I think it's amazing. It's 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 something that's been brought to life in, in a way that your imagination fills in these gaps when you read, um, and it, that creates a very unique experience for the person reading it and experiencing it because you're kind of coming halfway to meet the writer. But it's going to be a different thing than when you see it brought to life, given sound. Um, you you see this artistic vision on the screen. Definitely. And it kind of sets up this steampunk aesthetic that we see throughout. We see a lot of this um, because it seemed like her novel was more medieval, more like early. And this is kind of has that technology pushing with magic. Yeah, I don't remember how many. I don't think there was any like horseless carriages. There's there was definitely no flying 
ships, airships. And I mean, I'm kind of jumping ahead of you a little bit, but there's a parade going on and there's all these soldiers who are going off to war and there's all this fanfare and we're seeing these big ships and one after another and this row of tanks going by that. And I thought it was interesting that he's setting up like it's a very ominous thing too, because while everyone's celebrating it, I think the way he draws them, especially the tanks, because they're very dark and very fearsome looking, he's setting up this idea of just the horror of war. And and we can see like the, something big is coming because of this. Yeah, I mean, definitely. It's it's kind of the glorification, right? Like there, there's a yeah. parade going on and there's everybody's happy and the soldiers are proud. And it, it just seems like probably not the best thing to be doing. Like, yes, it's ne- it can be necessary, but it just seems like uh putting too much emphasis on that being a good thing can lead into you know your military complexes and that kind of thing i mean yeah i mean you look around the world this still goes on and and you know to a lesser extent maybe in america but big military parades you know harkens to a lot of stuff you see in world war ii whether it's from germany or china or japan um and and you know soldiers marching in lockstep and and you know tanks rolling by and, and how that i think is a very complicated fraught image well yeah because it's very important to to support your the troops and the sacrifices that they're making and i mean you know it, there can't be enough said for that it's that that is a thing that should should be we should be extre- like you know we're eternally grateful but it's it, it becomes an issue when there's you know there's there's other things at at bay other powers that are kind of deciding how those are received by the public yeah and it's it's you know nationalism run run rampant when you maybe in the guise of supporting the troops um well you can ignore what your government may be doing and whether or not the wars that your troops are fighting are are uh, just ones and worth it and worth the destruction that they're going to that they're going to inflict and you know, it's kind of impossible to not get a little political talking about it, but I, I, that's the way I read it, and it seems to me very much a don't you know wrap yourself in your fl- in the flag and ignore ignore the reality of what's happening. Well, it's 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 love your country, love the troops, be skeptical of the government, right? Kind of that that's kind of what I got from it. Yeah, and, and I think the number one way to support the troops is to make sure that when they're going into battle, it's for the right reasons, and it's a just, exactly. just war. So, Agreed. So Sophie actually leaves the hat shop, and she's walking through these soldiers in this parade, and she's heading towards Letty at the bakery. And some soldiers stop her, and they're they're kind of flirting with her in a forceful way. And um, she, I don't know if I'd call it flirting. <laughs> yeah, being creeps. They're yeah. They're creeping on her. It's definitely forceful, unwelcomed, unwarranted. They're cat, like basically catcalling her and harassing her on the street, right? Which anybody who lives in a big city knows is, is a real problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, flamboyantly dressed man shows up with like a cloak on and saves her and and says, "Come with me. Uh, she's with me, guys." Kind of thing. Yeah, he actually like says like, "Oh, there you are, honey." And right. she goes along with it and is fine with it, but that in and of itself is also a little weirdly presumptuous. And, you know, ultimately he's sa- he's kind of saving the day um, in this moment. But this also is, a, is you know, kind of a, a different separate point when he first shows up and he's very flamboyantly dressed and he's blonde and he's 
you know, he looks how he looks. When he opens his mouth and Christian Bale's voice comes out, that was one of the first times where I'm like, oh, I don't know if this fits. And I yeah. think it grows on me over time, but the, immediately I'm like, that doesn't sound like this character. I agree. I think early on is when I also f- felt the resistance to it. Like, I was like, oh, okay, I can, I guess I'll get on board with this. And and eventually, I think it pays off in the end. Like, I think he does a good job, like I say. Yeah. So we find out that this is the wizard Hal because he grabs her, uh, her arms and they jump into the air and they walk in the air. They are literally walking above the buildings and he we we're, we also see that there's some sort of like ooze slime monsters that are after him. So she pulled him away from the soldiers just to get chased by slime monsters. They they get away while walking through the air and he drops her off at the bakery and he says, I'll lure the slimy guys away. Yeah, I mean, these these shadow slime monsters, whatever they are, really cool um, creations of some sort from the Witch of the Waste. Uh, it's really kind of funny. I think this and later uh, these creatures all wearing hats. It's just like, I don't know, a weird detail that I find humorous. They're all in uniform, too. So Sophie meets up with her sister, Letty, and Letty, she's telling Letty about Hal, who just saved her, and she says, you need to be careful because Hal, like in the novel, he eats women's hearts. He, she specifically says beautiful women's hearts, and Sophie is, says something about how she doesn't need to worry because she doesn't feel like she, she doesn't see herself as beautiful, which kind of setting up this character of being um, not very confident, in her like outward appearance and it's kind of affecting her inward appearance so she leaves this shop i i think this is also something that you know both the novel and the movie do well that make this character so appealing um probably particularly to young women and it's the idea that you know the more plain quote-unquote woman is perhaps um self-conscious about her appearance but maybe you know prettier than she seems um, but again, this also feels a little bit problematic to me because there's a lot of weight in this universe placed on, you know, beauty equating to quality, equating to goodness. Um, and we'll get into it more later, but I think, um, this is also juxtaposed against the witch who is very ugly and is very fat and her fatness almost seems to equate with being evil and being ugly on the inside. So even though the old woman part of it turns it on its head a little bit, and I'm glad that's in there, um, there is a little bit of this thing that makes me a little uncomfortable being that if you're an ugly person, you're an ugly human being and you're and you're bad. And if you're beautiful, like how, you know, then you're a good person. I think I think as the story goes, they kind of try to try to get away, a little bit away from that because Hal stops worrying about how he looks and his potions and all that kind of thing. And he kind of, you know, goes through that and and sophie as well by the end she i don't think she she kind of gets over the image feelings that she has of herself but like you say it's still it's still a lot of it like you said the witch is is large so she's she's evil so that can be definitely seen as problematic in my opinion yeah so sophie leaves uh letty's bakery and she heads back to the shop and when she gets to the shop she's kind of closing up and a woman shows up she is just in the store and sophie basically says we're closed get out we're just a little shop and the witch is kind of offended by this and we find out that this is the witch of the waste to calling her the witch and she says i can't believe you would treat the witch of the waste like this and she kind of flies through her leaving a curse spell on her and uh as she leaves she she says two things she says you won't be able to tell anybody about this this curse 
and also send my regards to Hal, and she leaves. What, we, what we're left is with is Sophie as an old woman, and she looks in the mirror, and even in the even in the in the novel she wasn't as affected, but in the, in the in the movie she's still just like, okay, I'm old now. She she accepts it within like, you know, a day or so, and then she ends up leaving. She does have a funny kind of freak out moment at first, though, that I really liked where she looks in the mirror and says and it has like, a, you know, like a she jumps and then she says, oh, you know, oh, my God, this is what I look like. And then she like paces around telling herself, don't freak out, don't freak out, don't freak out. And then like looks in the mirror again and has the same reaction. You know, it's it's, it's played for laughs and I think it works. And um, maybe maybe a slightly more believable reaction to it than we necessarily got in the book. She does something early on that I think she does as an old woman as well, where she pulls her hat over her head in a specific way. And that just reminded me of something I wanted to say about Miyazaki is that he's so uh, detail-oriented with his characters, with the story as a whole. And I was listening to an interview or reading an article or something talking about his process in characters. And what he does in the animation is he gives each character a specific... um, habit that they'll do so in in uh, spirited away you'll see the character kick when she puts her shoes on she she kicks her toes on the ground to make sure that her feet are like fully set in her shoes and something that i see sophie do a lot in this is pull her hat down in a very specific way and it's just something that gives like it's a it's an action that gives the character uniqueness it gives the care it makes them them have that that certain trait and i thought i just think that's genius i just think that's something that like any character that I create from from here till whenever, I'm always going to be thinking about that. That's the effect of the way that I think of of visually what a character does on screen, giving them like I I don't want to. It's not a tick, but it's it's a certain it's a certain motion that they repeat a lot, and it and it's part of their character. I mean, it's cool, and I'm glad that you you have such a positive look at it. Um, that is something that writers do as well, and it's <laughs> I think it's a cool thing. Um, it can also be seen as kind of a cheat, but I think that's silly to think of it that way. But the point being is, I mean, we see this in it that we covered a long time ago. Um, you know, characters have little quirks and those little quirks can kind of define them. And right. they're always present when you're reading about that character and it, it grounds you to that person. Um, even if it's something as simple as a stutter or, you know, a physical appearance trait or whatever it might be. In a novel, I think it's a little more apparent because the writer has to tell you that it's happening. Whereas it's like passively happening in a film where it's like you might not even notice that she does it the whole film. Right. And it's something so subtle. But if it's overplayed, if you overplay your hand, it can it can lead into the fact that the character is on the nose. You know, mm-hmm. you're, the, the reader knows what you're trying to say with the character. So Sophie is now an old woman and she realizes that she shouldn't stay in the hat shop. She, she realizes that she should just leave. And uh, she heads toward the countryside. She approaches multiple different people and she finds different ways out of the city and up into the hills and i mean the landscapes is another thing in miyazaki's films that i just like i think every single a lot of his his like large establishing shots can be your back your background on your phone can be your background on your computer they're all (laughs) just like amazing and so we're we're in the hills and she comes along uh scarecrow who she pulls out of the bushes uh, before you got to the scarecrow thing, I just wanted to say because before I leave it in the dust, um, there is a a scene early on with um, monsters that the wi- the witch summons, carrying her in this palanquin, palanquin, and it makes this sound. And I, so I watched the film with my wife, and she note she mentioned it. She goes, "I hate the sound it makes," and it makes this like weird creaky sound whenever they're like walking, 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know, whatever it is, it's unsettling, right? And so we, and we see them kind of like comically carrying it around. And the other thing that's funny about it is it's this tiny little box and she is like spilling out of it whenever she opens the window to talk. Like she barely fits inside of it. Um, but yeah, I don't know, really interesting kind of cool detail. And I love what Miyazaki does there because that's not in the book at all. All right, so Turnip, Turnip Head, who I love in the movie, uh, he he is fantastic. He immediately wins us over by... I don't know, just doing cool things and bringing her an umbrella, and, or that's later. Uh, what does he bring her? Oh, he brings her the cane here, mm-hmm. um, hopping along after her. Their their relationship is immediately really winning and interesting to me, and much different than the film because he, she's afraid of of than the book. The, this oh yeah, sorry, much different than the book because she's afraid yeah. of him in the book, and yeah, so she she effectively saves him. She pulls him out of the bushes and. Like you were saying, she he eventually brings her a cane, and then she sarcastically says, uh, "Now just bring me some a house to sleep in." And next thing you know, there's a moving castle over top of her, and she knows that it's Hal's moving castle, and uh, she sees the, the entrance. That this turnip head is jumping near the entrance, so she heads to the entrance and climbs in. And speaking of this part, in both the book and the movie, I really wanted, I really wanted her motivation to be, "I'm going to go to the waste and find Hal and tell him I've been cursed." Or try and see if he can lift this curse, even though I can't tell him, obviously, that I've been cursed. But we don't really get that in either version. And in this version, I thought, okay, they're going that route. But then, again, she she kind of talks about it like she doesn't expect it. And I know I get that she doesn't necessarily realize that the man who saved her from the creeps is Hal. But the, the, the witch does say, give my regards to Wizard Hal. So... It seems like it, it, I, as a character motivation, she could have this thought of I'm going to go seek out this wizard. Um, and I, I don't know. It, it just it seems like a missed opportunity to give Sophie some agency there, whereas her wandering into the waste continues to feel a little bit bizarre to me, like uh, like irresponsible. Like, what are you like? What is she going to do in the waste? Like, what is her plan? Yeah, I didn't really think about that. Because for some reason, my, my brain just put two and two together that she was going to find Hal. And it's not like she is, she never, you know, she isn't. Because like you say, she's a surprised she to see Hal's moving castle. So that is that is kind of an oversight a little bit, right? Like, like why not just, it would have been easy just to say, go look for, I'm going to look for Hal because he's a wizard who can save me. Yeah, and it changes her character ever so subtly because instead of her taking her own situation into her own hands and saying, I'm going to go and try and fix it she gets swept up in a, in kind of an adventure that is beyond her control. Maybe it's because they want her to be more of a surrogate for the, they, they want the audience to experience what she's experiencing. So it's like, if she was going to look for how we would have already known that what her plan was. And it's like a little more. Yeah. It's also, but I, I mean, I think it's impossible to not talk about the differences in the, you know, the gender of the character because often um, like a male character tends to have more agency um, in a lot of stories. And this is something we're working on a lot in the, you know, in the writing community and changing, but because she's a woman, um, at least early on, they maybe leaned into this more passive role for her. And, you know, you can make an argument and say that it, that it works for her character because she is very passive early on. And then she kind of like, you know, as the story progresses, um, it's about her achieving agency so I'm not trying to like cut the story down or anything when I mention these things. It's just something that I notice as as a writer myself, and, and it's choices that creators make. When she heads into the castle, uh, she, there's no one inside, and she heads over to the fire. And while she's sitting there, she realizes that the fire is alive, and he introduces himself as Calcifer, a fire demon. And fairly quickly, she asks 
since you're a fire demon, can you break my curse? And he agrees that he will break her curse and says that he can if she breaks his curse first, which neither can tell each other what the curse is. It's like a shortened version of of the conversation they have in the novel. Um, I like it. It gets to the point faster and it says, you know, clear quid pro quo, quid pro quo. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you help me, I'll help you. So what do you think about Calcifer movie versus film while we're while we're talking about him? I mean, he's, movie he's, versus book. He, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. I knew what you meant. <laughs> I mean, he's Billy Crystal here. And because of that, he's he's a character, you know, he's he's cracking wise and he's making jokes. And um, I like him. Um, I think I, I think when I recall back to when I originally saw this movie, probably around the year it came out, um, Billy Crystal wasn't someone I was real familiar with. So I think it stood out less to me than it does now. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's funny. I like him and I like the character, but I think maybe if I had to give it, if I had to give it to one of them and maybe we can do this for each character down the row eventually, but I think for this one, I'm going to give it to book Calcifer. I think I prefer. Okay. Yeah. I think I prefer movie just because of nostalgia. And I felt like he was like a little more, He's just more, he's like all fun in the movie and he's like more serious in the book. And like, I, like that yeah. can be a good thing for the book, but I think I just like movie version more. Yeah, and I can't fault you. Sophie falls asleep by the fire and in the morning, the wizard howls, apprentice comes downstairs and he notices Sophie's there, but he isn't really phased. He's like, when did she get here? And he, he goes to the this door that has a knob on it with th- different colors and uh, three separate times there are knocks on the door and he turns it to different colors each time and uh, he puts on this disguise and like pulls it over himself and it's like a hood with a beard and it makes the, the this young kid look like an old man, old little man. And he uh, takes care of whatever the needs of these people are. So he hand, handles all that. And then Sophie is uh, kind of talking to him. He's he's wanting to make breakfast. So Sophie's like, but you have eggs and bacon here, so I'm going to make it. She uses the pan, goes over calcifer, makes the food. And uh, Mark will real, uh notes that the only person that can do that is Hal and right then Hal bursts in the door and he is not really phased that she's there either he kind of just goes up and says like what are you doing here what's up let me let me finish cooking and she says that I'm the new cleaning lady because I've never seen somewhere this dirty and he kind of just shrugs it off and is like okay yeah I mean a lot of this stuff is right from the novel um the breakfast cooking scene is almost identical. I did want to mention that um uh, Markle um who I believe's named Michael in the book unless I was mishearing it on the audiobook um regardless that character has been aged down for the movie um he is he's like i don't know probably eight or something whereas in the book he seems i think he's more i think he's said to be fifteen yeah he's like um, a and actually yeah and he's like a love interest for letty um so it, it's, yeah, different, quite different. And their relationship, I think, is a little different because of it. There's maybe a little bit more motherly attitude between them than there than there was in the book. Yeah, there's a bit. Yeah. And, and it but at, by the end of it, he kind of feels like a surrogate son for the family. Yeah. So it, it kind of works for me. But I also really enjoyed seeing a different take in the in the novel where it was like, a real apprentice that was learning the spells from Hal and seemed to be like more not in in Hal's league, but on his way to being a powerful wizard as well. Whereas I felt like Markle is just like very young. There's a subtle thing that begins to happen here and and, and it continues and it becomes more apparent as it goes. But initially she is 
like she she um is super old and she's really bent she's so bent over there's a funny scene where she gets up from the bed and she actually like her head doesn't move levels at all she stands up essentially in the same exact position she is sitting on the bed because she's so bent over um but then as she as we go and we see her doing all these things she's starting to stand a little straighter right and that continues to be a thing where she starts to seem much more like a young person uh, who looks a little bit old. And then um, we even get some breakthrough kind of moments where she looks young and then goes back to being old. And we can talk about those as they happen. But I just wanted to say I like the subtle um, things that Miyazaki does early to indicate that this is a thing that like is going to be throughout. She's going to be slightly changing. Yeah, um, I think it's interesting to note that it's almost like a spectrum here because it's like there's her young form and her old form and then she like fluctuates in between because like you say sometimes she's old but she stands straight up so she's a bit younger sometimes she has white hair but she's full young she looks completely young but she just still has the white hair and then other times she's full young with the dark hair and so and it kind of it's not like it fluctuates it's not like it goes old to young it goes old to middle to young to back to very old and and all over the the spectrum there so Hal asks Sophie what's in her pocket when they're eating breakfast and she pulls out a piece of paper that she didn't know was in there Suppo- like we're supposed to assume that the, the, the witch of the waste put it there and Hal opens it up it drops on the table and it's a spell that like creates like a burn in the table and uh, I think we're supposed to take it as like a tracking spell because at, right after that Hal stands up and says that the, we need to move the castle and tells Calcifer we need to move um, but I just really like that that animation and that moment where Hal shows his powers for the first time and he, he makes that burn disappear from the table. There's a really cool thing with Hal in general. Whenever he does magic where his hair starts like lifting up and moving on its own, and it's, like, it's a subtle thing, but it's also like this clear sense of power and magic that um, he's that it's coming out of him. Yeah. So Turniphead uh, didn't actually come into the castle with Sophie when she first entered. And the next day she's cleaning the house and, and Markle's kind of helping her, but he's like kind of hiding stuff in his room, trying to move stuff around. Witch on a rampage. Yeah, she's on a rampage. She was, she was. I mean, the full, I think you posted on our social media at some point, the, yeah. the cleaning gif. And I yeah. mean, it's so good. It's good. <laughs> it's, it's so good. She's got like the, the handkerchief over the face as well as on the head uh-huh. and... So she's cleaning everything. They eventually find that Turniphead is like stuck in the gears of the castle. So he's like still around. And the three of them kind of finish uh, cleaning together and they hang up. They stop the castle and they hang up clothes. And there's kind of this moment, like you were saying before, of those, those, it, it gives the moment, it gives the movie a moment to breathe. We kind of take time to, to look at the view. And she talks about how this is like one of her most relaxing days or something like that. We cut during this relaxing cleaning scene. We cut to Hal, who's a black bird in this war-torn area during a battle, and then basically we cut right back to uh, Sophie and them cleaning. She has this moment where she walks out the castle door, and in they're like walking along the edge of a cliff or something, and she's really impressed by it. And she comes runs back inside and tells Calcifer, "I love your spark" or whatever, giving him this like you know compliment, and then he gets all excited and you know. That, I think, was a really cool moment that isn't really in the book, and it helps. Um, she references it again later, where she's really kind to him. And it makes us like Sophie more. It makes us buy their her friendship with Calcifer more. Um, there's some really nice emotional touches that Hayao Miyazaki brings to this story that I think strengthens a lot of these uh, connections between these characters. 
Definitely. And and I talked about how before I felt like this is more of a, a romantic like love story. Whereas in the in the novel, both I think we both agreed that the it didn't really feel like the, the love story was quite as earned. And I think it's mostly because of this this does a good job of like kind of selling it throughout while it also is like a it doesn't it's not like so obvious, but it's it's always kind of there. There's always like that tension and it's slowly leading to that. Yeah, I mean, I forgot to mention that early on, there's initial, there's immediately clearly an attraction between them. And they're kind of flying through the air, him holding her up moment. She's clearly, you know, taken with him. And yeah, I think from the jump, this is much more a story about their romance. And we immediately feel the, the strain of her being in, you know, an old woman's body. And and the strain that puts on their potential, you know, romantic uh, relationship. Yeah, and and jumping off of that, um, so I was saying Hal was in the the war torn area during a battle, and I mean it's just showing the destruction. There's just like a city on fire. He's flying around. There's there's creatures. There's that he, um, there's creatures flying around that he kind of fights and runs from, mostly runs from. Yeah, I wanted to speak on that specifically. He says they are wizards who turned themselves into monsters for the king. And then Calcifer says, you know, they'll never be able to come back from that. And if you take that as a thematic thing and you take that as a symbolic thing, right? It's it's these people, these like maybe, you know, um, scientists and, 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 and brilliant minds who turn their work towards creating weapons of destruction and turn their work towards harm. And uh, Miyazaki making the statement that they'll never be able to come back from that, I think is telling, right? It's, it's uh, something that you should, you should not do because it will, it will uh, stain you. Yeah, and um, the fact that you haven't seen The Wind Rises and you just said those words um, makes me think that you're really going to like The Wind Rises because um, <laughs> I, I won't, there's no spoilers. I'm not going to give you any spoilers, but basically the, the idea behind The Wind Rises is, is there's a there's a young man who becomes an engineer and he falls in love with, with um, planes and um, he just happens to be coming up and inventing planes during um, pre-World War II times. There's not much fantasy to it and it's kind of Miyazaki at his most human, but I think you'll really enjoy that movie because it's a lot of that, a lot of people using their gifts and the things that they love because Miyazaki, clearly from a lot of his work, loves flying. There's a lot of flying in all of his films and the idea of flight and seeing your love turned into like a a weapon of destruction is kind of a running theme in like a lot of his stuff. Yeah. Like you were saying when when Hal gets back he 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 lands and and opens the door and is walking into the castle and he's he's transforming back from this bird form that he had been in. He had been in like this feathery black form and he walks up to Calcifer and he's talking to him a little bit like you said about the wizards becoming these creatures and how they won't be able to turn back and that's kind of giving us a hint that if Hal keeps turning into these weird creatures he might not be able to turn back and he also in the scene sees Sophie uh sleeping and when Sophie's sleeping she's her younger self she's no longer old she has brown hair she's young looking as she had been in the beginning of the film and this is kind of interesting because we don't know for a fact as the reader in the novel that Hal knew that Sophie was actually under a curse until late in the book. And this is very early on. We know that he knows that she's not actually an old woman. There's a curse that's going on. Yeah. So the next day, Sophie and Markle go to the, go to the 
market and Sophie is old again and they see a ship that's been attacked and it's on fire and there's soldiers jumping off of the ship and just showing the the horrors of war and even the characters Sophie Sophie says she can't stand it and and they have to leave when they get back to the to the castle Hal has a freak out because when yesterday the day before when Sophie had been cleaning she cleaned the bathroom and she moved around his potions or his spells that were in the bathroom and he runs downstairs with orange hair and he's not happy about that. He feels like beauty is, is his whole thing. So the fact that he's not no longer beautiful and he has orange hair is really affecting to him. And so he sulks and is very, very over-the-top upset. And he leans over and these dark demon creatures start summoning on the walls. And he turns into this green slime monster. And Sophie, um, he, he makes a comment about how he's no longer beautiful. So there's no reason to live. And Sophie uh, starts crying and runs outside into the rain because she says that um, it's not fair that he feels that way when she feels that she's never been beautiful and she's like right. crying in the rain. And it's just more of that, that idea that she doesn't, she sees herself through this, through this lens of uh, ugliness when it's, you know, it's, it's the themes that are going on or, you know, it's not, it's not what's on the outside. It's what's on the inside. It's what kind of person you are and people are going to love you for who you are, regardless of how you look. So yeah, and and it's a cool moment right from the book. Um, I think this is a lot more of the how. This is the how from the book more, right? This is how he is most of the time in the book. He he can be very childish. He can be ve- he's very vain in the book. Um, I like that they included this part because I think it's an essential thing for his character, especially that something that he seems to kind of get over through his relationship with Sophie. Um, but yeah, this this kind of thing is 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 a lot more present in the book. Yeah, and so uh, Sophie is she's outside crying, and and Turniphead actually shows up and is like holding an umbrella out for her, and she she kind of works through it and and uh, like rises back up and goes inside to help Hal, and because Hal's slime had been like almost covering Calcifer, killing him, and they she dragged him upstairs, threw him in the bath, and and Markle was supposed to like wash him off. Yeah, and we see some uh, Hal butt here. Um, it's, I thought it was a really funny moment too, where she like she looks down and sees that the towel has come off, and then like looks at the sky, yeah. uh, you know. And and it was something that also was kind of missing from the book. There was this whole thing where she takes him in, like scrubs him off, and all this stuff. And I I remember thinking like, you know, what's she seeing in this moment? So I don't know. Maybe that's uh, immature of me, but I thought it was funny to see it addressed here, and 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 her reaction is is uh, priceless. I mean, yeah, my girlfriend mentioned the same thing. Like, we were like, oh, there's Hal butt. And so yeah. what's funny is that at first it's just like like half butt. And then like as she's dragging him upstairs, it's like full Hal butt. Like full. Yeah. <laughs> Some animated cheeks. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Hal is kind of recovering from this freak out that he has. And he's, and he's in his room. And I honestly, I wrote down something that I feel... Um, I think that Hal's room and like the kind of things that are going on in there is the most interesting location in my opinion. Like it's like there's more beautiful locations that are more sprawling landscape, but like it's so interesting to see all the things that were in there that he that Miyazaki crafted and thought of and just little intricate bits and bobs and magical spells things. Yeah, really cool like just baubles everywhere and and devices and later it kind of transforms and looks like a like a dragon's horde now whether or not that was a dream we can talk about but um yeah there's just a lot of cool stuff that goes on in there i agree so, so um while hal is recovering sophie's kind of trying to help him out and sorry earlier i should have said that markle is is uh given an invitation to give to hal to go to be summoned to the kingdom 
to the king. And Hal doesn't want to do it because he is this slitherer outer from the novel. He he doesn't want to uh, to be at the beck and call of a king. And he realizes that he should have Sophie go instead. So he's like, I'm gonna. He's like, you're gonna go instead. I'm gonna watch over you. Everything's gonna be fine. He gives her this ring with a jewel in it, and she's on her way. And she goes to the palace while she's walking up the steps, or before she gets to the steps, uh, the witch of the waste shows up. And she's being carried again by her by her ink soldiers, and she kind of talks to Sophie about what she's doing here, how everything's working out for her, which isn't great. The Witch of the Waste says that she'd been summoned by the king, and by the time they get to the stairs, uh, her magic, the Witch of the Waste's magic won't work anymore, so they have to walk up the steps, and they're both fairly old, and, and the Witch of the Waste is rather large. So walking up is, is a lot of effort, but it's more than that because it's like every step she takes, she's like melting and like becoming less powerful and uh the whole time sophie's like walking up the steps ahead of her kind of like saying like hurry up yeah i mean it's a great scene and um we'd be remiss to not mention the little weird dog that she uh assumes is hal at first but we later learn isn't um bizarre little dog makes the funniest little like inhale bark and seems to have chicken feet often when you look at it he has weird chicken feet, which is very weird um but funny little dog and it's it's the whole time it does funny things and she has to carry it and it's just like limp on and this is another great moment for sophie's character because we see her while she while she asks the you know witch to lift the curse and has clearly got some bad blood towards her because of it she also is like supportive and she you know while in a kind of a funny way she's like come on you can do it this is what you've been waiting for and and kind of roots her on while she's coming up the stairs and this version of sophie i really like because she has this kindness that even extends to her enemies when the witch of the waste finally gets to the top and and sophie's a little bit further ahead the witch of the waste looks inside and sees a chair and greedily runs up to it and sits down immediately and um this weird thing happens while sophie kind of slips into the next room the the all those lights all these lights come on and some sort of like spell is going on uh we don't see anything else from that because sophie's in the next room and she's meeting with the king's wizard who is madame solomon and madame solomon interestingly enough is kind of a an amalgamation of two characters from the novel uh penstemon was the teacher of Hal. And Wizard Solomon was a was a man who was a wizard for the king. So it's like the merging of those two characters because uh, Madame Sullivan from the film says that Hal trained underneath her and then eventually ran away because uh, he fell into a curse with a demon. And this is a, a amalgamation of two scenes, um, which is really expertly done because this is also this is the scene where Sophie meets the king, blended with the scene where she ta- sits down with. Uh, Pinstemon in the book. Exactly. Solomon tells Sophie that that Hal is uh, dangerous and that he's has this curse. And Sophie says um, he's not going to serve the king. I think she says something about him being a coward, like uh, that's similar to the to the novel. And um, they kind of go back and forth. And then Sophie says Hal's not going to come to the castle. Madame Solomon says, if he comes to the castle, I'll lift the curse on him from the demon. But if he doesn't, this will happen to him. And then they cart in the Witch of the Waste, who is basically like a a puddle at this point. Solomon says that she's lost all of her power. She's very docile. She can't even really talk at this point. This is kind of when Sophie's saying like, okay, well, Hal's not going to show up. He's not going to. And Solomon says, that's not true. He's going to show up. 
next thing we know, the king lands on these, these, there's these flying devices that I think we kind of mentioned earlier, but they're steampunk-ish. It's kind of flapping wings on it, and you stand on it. It's Looks like dragonflies. Exactly. The king lands, and he comes inside, and he's talking to Solomon and Sophie, and he's like, tell, tell Wizard Hal not to come. We don't want to use magic to, to win this war. And then, wouldn't you know it, another king walks in that looks exactly the same. And this king says, he's talking about battle plans, kind of, and, and he kind of comments about the fact that Solomon has created this perfect clone of him, and he's like, that's a good clone. That's a pretty good... I haven't seen you make one this well. And uh, once he leaves, Solomon's like, hello, Hal. And turns out the first king that walked in was Hal. And Hal reveals himself, transforms into himself, and says that he fulfilled some deed that he needed to do, which was come to the castle. So he did that, and he wouldn't be staying. And Solomon tries to stop them. She's trying to attack Hal, and he's kind of biting on this bait because it was all a trap in the end. And he's transforming into the, the demon bird, and then Sophie tells him not to, and they he's like he realizes that he shouldn't, and they fly away land on one of these little dragonfly steampunk machines and they fly away yeah i mean so much in that scene but um yeah i I particularly loved the magic and how it's portrayed and 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 the the perspectives and the the colors and the the waves and just the way those two things all or those things all interplay with one another it's it's all it's all great and uh you know just a cool scene a high action um a lot of fun you know, I think it's interesting to see here the shift in power between the Witch of the Waste being kind of the antagonist of this story, and clearly now she is not, and and this this new uh, Madame Solomon is now takes on the takes on the role, which is very different than the novel because Witch of the Waste was the yeah. ultimate villain in the novel. So they're flying on this dragonfly device thing, and Hal's like, "All right, I'm going to distract them because there's some pursuers that are coming after them," and he kind of like splits. Into, there's like an illusion version of them and the real version and Sophie has to dry, fly this machine that she's never flown before and in that moment he also tells her that the ring that he gave her will point to Calcifer where the where the castle is so just fly towards the waist towards Calcifer and it's pointing out like a laser so she follows that laser and eventually crash lands into Howl's Moving Castle like the mouth of the castle opens up and she flies right in and, and they land and nobody's hurt uh, something that I should have mentioned is that the Witch of the Waste had grabbed on to them and was on the ship as well as Pence, um, as well as Solomon's uh, dog that you mentioned before. So Sophie, the Witch of the Waste, and Solomon's dog are all in Hal's Moving Castle now. Yeah, I mean, and this is another moment where Sophie is being really forgiving of her enemies, right? Like, she's fine with the Witch of the Waste being there. And then the little dog, she looks back at it and says, like, oh, you were a spy for her. And then she goes, well, I guess it's too late to throw you off or whatever, like kind of funny but uh it's also yeah it's her just forgiving and befriending this dog and you know it pays off for her in the end um and that these she wins over these characters i think all right i think this is a pretty good place to stop and talk to you about audible we actually have an audible affiliate link it's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film and what you get with that is 30 free days and one free credit for any novel in their collection yeah and if you wanted to keep on listening to this podcast now that we're done with how's moving castle we are going to jump into Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe, which most people don't know is the novel that inspired Die Hard, which will be our Christmas release. Well, I'm really excited about that. It's one of my favorite movies, one of my favorite Christmas movies, and uh, I've never read this novel. How about you? Yeah, no, you keep coming to me with these these novels that are the basis for some great films and and i had no idea that the novel even existed so it's fun to to get to go back and see these source materials 
Yeah, so we're going to be reading it for the first time together then. And if you wanted to listen to it on Audible, you can have it for free. Just use our affiliate link, audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And you can go ahead and grab that and follow along with us if you want. So here, Howl actually returns from the fight with the pursuers that were chasing Sophie and company. And he's almost entirely a demon bird right now. He goes to his room and on the way, Sophie wakes up. And she'd been sleeping, so she's in her younger form, uh, and she didn't turn old again, and she kind of follows Hal into his room, and I think, as you said before, his room, instead of being these this small room with intricate little bits and bobs everywhere, it's this, these tunnels that go really far back in different directions, and all the things are, like, embedded in the dirt walls. She follows these tunnels back and finds this mass of black feathers that's kind of moving around, and and... Sophie realizes that it's Hal and she she talks to him about breaking the curse. She says like, I, I, I want to break the curse so that this isn't happening anymore. And she actually ends up saying, she says she loves him. And he's like, he says it's too late. And he flies out of the castle, leaving Sophie. And she had been younger. And as soon as he flies out, it's one of my favorite shots in the movie. He covers the, the camera. And as he leaves frame, she's, she's old again. So she like kind of becomes old in that moment. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'd forgotten it. But uh, what I did think of is that when he says like "go away" or "it's too late" or whatever, he sounds like Batman <laughs> from the Batman films. And I'm wondering, where's Rachel? I don't know that. Like, do you know what year Batman Begins came out? Yeah, oh five. Off the top of your head, oh five. Yeah, oh five. Yep. So that's right around this time. Right around this time. So I'm wondering. I'm wondering if he developed this before the batman voice and it was like it ended up being a precursor to i don't know and i thought it was funny but my main question about this scene is is this a dream because it doesn't seem to have happened right after this right like when she wakes up so i don't think it's a dream um but you mentioned it earlier on the podcast and i kind of picked up on it and i was like that's the only place that he could be talking about a dream um the only reason i don't think it's a dream is because the next morning she like hears the bath come on and I feel like we see him get into the bath a lot when like things have happened. Like we, he, at least we hear or know that he had taken a bath after like he had been the creature or after he'd been like slime and he probably takes baths in the, I'm probably wrong and he probably takes baths without that having just happened. But um, I never really read it as a dream, but it's definitely something to think about. What, what, what makes you think it's a dream? Well, he seems fine for one. Also the room is, is back to normal later. Um, and I don't know, like it, it seems like it's never mentioned again that he was this like weird dragon thing almost that was seemed like out of control. And it, I don't know. I, I, I can't remember specifically if there's any more indications, but I thought the movie like through the language that it, of, that it was speaking to me in was telling me that this was possibly a dream. You know what? Now that you say that, it, I think it could be. I don't know. I'll have to check it out on my next viewing. I never really read it that way, but it definitely could be. Like you can explain away it not being a dream, but at the same time, the room being weird. Like the room could have like healed itself because the the castle does weird stuff sometimes. But like you, yeah, it would make more sense. magic. So it would make more sense for it to to have been a dream. Um, and she also says, "I love you." So it's kind mm -hmm. of like, if that isn't a dream, doesn't it kind of undermine their love? I guess he doesn't. He's not really surprised that she loves him later, and they. It, yeah, I don't know. From here true. on, it kind of seems like they love each other. Um, I feel like this is kind of that that point because the next morning, like you say, he's fine and he comes down after after having taken a bath, and he says they have to move the castle because 
people are getting too close to finding them. So he's drawing uh, spell circles on the ground and of the castle and outside. And he, he picks up Calcifer with a shovel, which is like from the novel directly. And he stands in the and he he starts moving over and and the rooms meld together just like in the novel, the 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 castle that they have and the room that they're moving to melds together and things move around, and um, in this moment, Calcifer flares up. And something I wanted to mention to you specifically is, I think that is is Hayao Miyazaki's nod to the book accurate Calcifer because he like he like flares yeah. up and he's like purple and blue and he has teeth and his eyes are crazy, and. Um, I'm pretty sure that's kind of what he's supposed to look like in the book. Uh, yeah, agreed. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that's what he's doing there. So after they move, Sophie kind of realizes that the place that they've just moved into is her old home. Hal, Hal calls for her and she comes down and he says that, that on the knob with the different colors that, that leads to different locations. I don't know if we really explain that in depth for people who didn't follow us in our, in our book coverage, but there's a door, you spin the knob to a different color, it takes you to, it leads to a different location outside of the castle. So uh, Hal tells Sophie there's a new one and he spins to the new color and they open it and it's this field full of flowers. He takes her out there. They're talking, walking through the flowers, and he says that it's his it's his gift to her. At that moment, a bomber is flying over the location with all the flowers. And Hal is just like, this is what you were talking about before, where she asks, like, is it is it one of ours? And he's like, it doesn't matter. Says, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? So he he kind of uses this crazy magic and like goes into the ship and like stalls it out and kind of makes it stop where it is. Really cool. He but when we see Hal or when we see Hal again, he's his arms are covered in feathers and he's like turning demonic into that demon bird. And there's a, a bunch of creatures fly out and he picks up Sophie and they fly back towards the door and he, th- he throws her into the door and the door shuts behind her. And there's a lot of I mean, if you look at that as we're talking about our themes here. He he is forced to turn himself into this monster in order to fight against these other monsters. And the whole the whole thing is about him not turning into it permanently, right? So there's yeah, I mean that that all plays into exactly what we were saying. And about how you have to fight, you know, but you have to also be careful that you don't turn into the thing that you are fighting against. Right. You can't lose your humanity and your empathy. So Hal throws her back in the door. The door shuts behind her and he's out there fighting apparently because he stayed behind and they're waiting for Sophie. Their days pass and Sophie's waiting for him to get back and she's kind of depressed. And the witch of the waste sees this. And one night when Sophie's kind of putting the witch of the waste to the bed, uh, she, she notices, she says, you're in love. And Sophie kind of, accepts this and says yeah she's in love she kind of thinks about it and asks the witch if she'd been in love and the witch says yes once and during this we cut to the cut to another shot of Hal as it as the demon in in another fiery battle and there's creatures flying around and and bombs being dropped on on cities and villages and then we cut to the next scene Sophie's mom shows up at the castle right it's she just like knows where the castle is shows up comes inside Sophie's there she sees Sophie's old and it feels like it's her fault. And then she leaves a bag behind because she has to leave really quickly. And she leaves a bag behind and the Witch of the Way sees it and immediately runs up and grabs it, opens it up. And there's like a little slimy creature inside. And she knows it's from Lady Solomon and throws it at, at Calcifer and says, eat this. It's for you. And he eats it and he becomes very weak and kind of goes down to an ember. Yeah, it's a cool moment. Um, it's also interesting because it the witch here seems to imply that she has a lot more mental faculty than she's been letting on, right? Like she seems like she has figured out that this is what's happening. 
to me, I always felt like she was like getting it back. Like she seemed like she was like slowly getting better. What do you think? Yeah, maybe. Or she was faking it the whole time? No, I mean, I don't think she's faking it. It could also come and go because she's she's supposed to be extremely old here. And it's so I, I always took it as some sort of d- dementia almost, which is something that comes and goes in real life. Um, so maybe sometimes she has more clarity than others. Um, but regardless, um, yeah, I thought it was cool to see her kind of being more like surprisingly adept at doing these this thing than we, you know, maybe we didn't expect her to be. Yeah, from here on, she seems like she's like really in control of her of her faculties, and and she, except for one more moment, she doesn't really fall back into that that state. Sophie's trying to get Calcifer to kind of flare back up, but he's like really weak and low. And Markle runs over and opens up the the window because Sophie tells him to. And when he does, because he's trying, they're trying to get some air to Calcifer. And when he does, um, right at that moment, bombs are being dropped in the area around them. And when the bombs are dropping, it actually affects the castle, whereas before it didn't. So seemingly, if you open the door or the windows are open, you can be affected by the outside world in the castle. And so Sophie runs outside to see if she can help because the bombs have been dropped all around her and ooze monsters show up and they start surrounding her. And another round of bombs is coming and they're falling from from the sky. And this is when Hal shows up and he kind of like redirects one and, and makes it not go off. He runs inside after that and he goes up to Calcifer and kind of pulls the weakness out of him, pulls whatever was, was ailing him out. And he, he mentioned something to the Witch of the Waste that I wanted to get your your take on. Was that, Do you think that was a nod to the thing that they kind of touched on in the book where he had gone after the Witch of the Waste and she he, at some point she had, he had been attracted to her and, and he went after her and then wronged her? And she was kind of, cause they, 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 he says something about, we, we need to talk. He, he says like, we need to have a conversation later, but we don't have time right now. And like runs back out. Maybe it's because he, she kind of poisoned Calcifer and he knew it. Well, he also, he also says something about the cigar. He says like, I, I think I know where you got that cigar. Um, so yeah, it, it seems like he, at the very least, he's kind of suspecting that she is working against him a little bit here and is maybe not you know, has, doesn't have the best of intentions. Um, and yeah, I think it says plainly that she once loved him and it was unrequited and, and that's kind of something that's been driving her. Yeah. Wanting his heart instead of his head, like the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in this moment, uh, she actually mentioned something about how she can't believe that Hal is not going to flee. He's going to go fight because he's he's headed right back outside and even Markle I think and Calcifer make comments about it and he he says he has something to fight for now meaning Sophie this hal is a lot more heroic as uh, something else i noticed he's always going to go into battle and willing to put himself you know risk his humanity and do all these things for the people he cares about and it makes me like this version of hal more so you know if we're talking about book versus movie i think i got to give it to movie hal as being the more likable, interesting character. I agree with that for sure. He he's more likable. He's he's less of the the problems that I felt like the book version had and more like heroics. So how uh is going back out to battle and it's, oh something I wanted to mention that you just said was he's not afraid to go into battle, but um my second viewing this week, I realized that when he goes into battle, the times that we see him flashed in battle, he's in the battles, but he doesn't, he's not directly attacking or fighting anyone. So what they say about him, like fleeing, they keep, they say like, I can't believe you're not fleeing. Like he, I think he like draws people away a lot. Like a lot of what he'd been doing up to that point, cause he's not doing any specific like attacking. 
Um, except for I thought we see him as a giant demon bird tearing apart an airship at one point, though. That's true. Isn't that now though? That's right now. That happens when he goes back out to battle yeah, now. Yeah. So he's up to this point though. Up, to, but up to this point he had been running. I feel like uh, not running, yeah. running tactically. Okay. Like he would fly into battle and like lure people away or kind of be like you know like the tar. He would make himself a target, but he was never like going in and fighting yeah. things. So he was like kind of fleeing on his own because it was like he's trying to prevent the bombs from being dropped on these villages and stuff. So like yeah, he's drawing them away from city centers and stuff. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that that is true. So this time, like you said, he goes out into battle and, and Sophie and everyone can see him out there and he's just tearing stuff up. He's out there and he's on airships and he's huge and fully demonic and he's ripping ships apart. And Sophie's like a little scared of that. And the ooze monsters are still trying to push into the castle. And as they're trying to push, Sophie's like, all right, we need to get out of here. Let's let's get Calcifer. Let's everybody leave. And so she picks up Calcifer on a shovel. And he's like, if you if you he's like, I need to go out last because the the castle is going to collapse behind me so she does that she she has him come out last and the whole castle collapse and in this moment he they kind of like run away and then realize they need to go back into the castle because it cuts to Hal fighting again and then they realize they need to go back into the castle to to travel still and so they go back into the rubble of the castle and put calcifer down at the at the hearth and he's like, I don't have enough power right now. It's wet here. There's like drips coming in because it was raining outside. And he, in this moment, I think what happens is Sophie makes a contract with him because she she offers a part of herself and that, that gives him power. Yeah, her hair. And they're connected. And yeah, so she cuts her braid that she'd had the whole film and gives it to him. And he like is super powered now and he lifts up a portion of the castle and they make this little turret, fast moving castle that comes out of the rubble. Yeah, I mean, we can we can talk about how cool this is, you know, like the the this new version of the castle, and then how it slowly disintegrates and starts breaking apart is all really cool. But uh, I just wanted to say this, this is another trope moment because she cuts off her braid and lets her hair down, which is like such a big '80s movie thing, right? Where like the 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 nerdy girl puts her hair down and then all of a sudden she's beautiful. And it's it's it kind of serves the same purpose here in this story. Um, it's just something because I've been like thinking about that. I noticed that I probably slipped by me the first time. Yeah, I didn't really think about that because, yeah, I mean, I see that now. But it seems like uh, I thought she was like making a sacrifice of something that she she liked. But I guess there's never really emphasis put on her hair that she likes her hair or anything. So her cutting her hair doesn't really mean anything except for the fact that people are supposed to see her as more. Like you said, like that 80s trope of seeing her as more beautiful now. You could make an uh, like some sort of symbolic argument about the braid representing her being like tightly bound and tightly, you know, like more reserved. And then her letting that go is like a representation of her kind of growth and freedom and, and you know, letting herself be and all that stuff. So there is an argument to be made for it. Yeah, definitely. And there's actually something here that we should mention is that, um, I mean, up to this point, we, we talked about how there's fluctuation, but up to the, like when, when all of this stuff is going on and in the novel, we know that Sophie had been putting the spell on herself. I don't know if they specifically say that in the, in the film, but the spell that, that had been cast that was keeping her old, she was keeping it on herself. Do you feel like there's a different reason or is it the same reason as in the novel? I think it's similar. Um, she, there's a part where she's talking to Hal and when she starts kind of being self-deprecating, she switches back into being old. And I think it's it, so I think it's very much tied with her own self image and her own confidence. And when she's confident and she believes that she's beautiful, then she is. 
yeah she becomes that i definitely agree with that that is the same as the novel but i also feel like there's something about um like not as like empathy towards others and not as much worrying about her because i feel like for me what i've always noticed is that when it's either she's not worried about herself she's sleeping is one is one instance where she she reverts back but uh she slowly like becomes younger she's still like older looking with the white hair um but she becomes younger looking when she's kind of uh dealing helping someone or dealing with something that isn't necessarily pertaining specifically to her and maybe it just has to do with her not not really thinking oh of herself in a in a kind of a bad way so they're in this little turret castle now it's running around and Hal is still up there fighting and at this moment the witch of the waste realizes that calcifer has a heart and she's been talking about hearts throughout throughout the film and and how she wants to get a heart a young man's heart or a heart and she sees a heart and she goes and grabs it from calcifer inside the fire and she pulls it out and she's kind of engulfed in flame and calcifer's there and sophie realizes to get them apart she has to throw a bucket of water on them making calcifer basically almost go out and the power that was holding the castle together, that mini turret castle that they were in, splits apart and Sophie's falls over the side of this valley. She falls really far away from where Calcifer and the Witch of the Waste is. And she kind of gets up after out of the rubble after a little while and her the ring that she's wearing is pointing again. So she she's starts moving towards where it's pointing and she finds the door that they've been traveling through that takes you to different locations. This time she goes through, it's kind of a black veil. When she gets through it, she's actually in, in Hal's childhood. And I love this scene. The scene is like unbelievably animated. The shooting stars are falling and it's this field of grass at night and they're hitting water, they're hitting the ground. And there's a young boy walking around that's Hal and he catches one in his hands. And Sophie can see from afar that he's like talking to it and then he eats it. And then something bursts out of him after he eats it and he's holding like young calcifer basically and then she's kind of dropped into this hole and as she's falling she says wait for me to both of them to howl and to calcifer and as she fall she they actually react and see her so it wasn't just kind of going back in time it was like affecting in some way like she actually was there and when she comes through the door howl is there and he's fully covered in feathers i had never noticed that until this viewing that she tells she tells howl look for me in the future or whatever right and it's just interesting that there's this element of time travel that gets added to the story and now all of a sudden because i've i I love time travel stories my mind's racing and i'm like wait a minute so if he grew up always knowing there was a woman who says look for me in the future you know after that moment so he's always been looking for her is it like a causality loop where she made him involve her in a way that he wouldn't have without having this memory of this woman telling him, you know what I mean? Right. So like I, I went down a rabbit hole of causality. She also then. had white hair too. So he didn't really know who it was yeah. and she had white hair. So he, maybe he was just going up to old women throughout his life and just like, <laughs> like seeing if she was the one. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, and honestly, I don't think this movie thinks about it too much, no. but I, I thought it was fun to think about. Definitely. We got to do a good like time travel. Book I agree. We got to find one because it could be a lot of fun to talk about. <laughs> I got a bunch of good time travel movies we can watch. I just don't know if they're based on books. So we got to find one of those. I bet. I bet some of them are. Yeah. All right. Anyway, let's go. <laughs> Sophie comes through the door and Hal is there and he's completely covered in feathers and she kind of pulls the feathers back and it, you see his face and it's like completely there's no emotion in any way. It's completely blank stare. And she she goes to him and she's like, take me to Calcifer. 
and he does it, but with no reaction in any way. So she gets, she, they fly over to where Calcifer is at, and when he lands, he just collapses and turns back into a human. Really cool, all the, all the feathers blow away, and he's just left as a human. That was a cool scene. I liked his big one bird, bird leg, too. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Yeah, he's really, really demonic. They, it goes from like being like a bird-like animal to being like weirdly unworldly, you know, something we haven't seen before. Sophie goes up to the Witch of the Waste, and she's kind of begging to have Calcifer's heart, the heart of Hal, we find out, uh, Hal's heart back. It's Calcifer. She, take, she takes the heart, and that makes everything so falling apart in this castle. And that at this point, it's just like a little platform on two legs. Yeah. So Calcifer's so weakened that the, that castle turret is literally just like two legs and a plate of wood, basically. And it's still running. It's still moving. And so Sophie's able to convince the witch to give the heart back because she just asks very nicely, I guess. And she hugs her and, and she says, if it's this important to you, then 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 here you go. And this is what I think this she this is earned because she's been so kind to her that I think um, the witch ultimately decides to... Um, that her friendship and her sense of family that she's developed is more important to her now than 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 her old, uh, you know, old things she wanted like the hearts. <laughs> yeah. Once Sophie gets the heart back, she she says to Calcifer, "You can have another thousand years." So she she is has fully realized that she's a witch at this point. I think I think it's kind of hinted at throughout throughout the the film, but she's supposed to realize that she has powers as well, and she gives a thousand years to Calcifer, and he flies off. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's as clear um, in the movie as it is in the book um, that she is a witch with powers, but it, there are there are there are signs of it, and I think it's a it's a valid read of the movie, even if you didn't know about the source material, to say that she actually does have some sort of witch 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 powers. Yeah, I think it's. I agree with you. It's less important. They don't really touch on it nearly as much that she because they kind of say outright that she's a witch in the in the novel, but. Yeah, and this, I, I mean, I first time I saw it, I had no idea she was going to do that. I had no idea she had powers until the very end. So she gives a thousand years to Calcifer. Calcifer flies away, and then she tells Hal's heart to go back into his body, and it does. And when it does, this platform that it, that Calcifer had been able to, to maintain, even though he was just an ember, it collapses completely. Hal's kind of waking up, and this this platform starts sliding down the mountain. And then Turnip Head shows up, jumps in the way, saves the day. He like sticks his stick in the ground to slow it slow it down and stop it right at the edge of the mountain. And when he saves them, uh, when they get to a flat surface, Sophie kisses Turnip Head in what is a very convenient and less uh, explained version of what happens in the books. Uh, Sophie kisses him, and that reverses the curse she kisses him on the cheek reverses the curse turning him into the prince that had been uh, from another country or something i don't even think the king in this movie was looking for a prince like he was in, in the novel but that he's a prince from a neighboring land and he says that he he doesn't want the wars to continue and that he had had a curse on him yeah and it's said that it's his true love's kiss and we find out that she's his true love and like I, I feel like it is an easy explanation and, and it works, but um, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't love it mm -hmm. because um, it also is a little weird that like Sophie's physical, you know, uh, kissing and like her, you know, you could say her sexual self is like what is being bartered here to break curses and to break you know to do all these spells and 
Anyway, the fact that um, she kisses him to reverse his spell, it's very tropey and it throws back to um, what Sleeping Beauty and all that stuff. But um, maybe it's turned on its head because but regardless, that's what that's what happens in the movie. And it's it's OK. Yeah, it's fine. I agree. It's, it's, it's something that like I feel like maybe if he had more time or something, he would put more thought in have put more thought into it. Which brings me to something that I actually did want to talk about with Miyazaki is that um, for a lot of his films, something that I didn't know until recently was that he actually would go into the story sometimes and be storyboarding, drawing for the movie, not knowing how it would end or what would even happen in the movie, which just blows my mind because like every rule of filmmaking, every rule of like, I mean, I'm sure you even writing, if you just start writing and well, I guess writing is a little different just because of the fact that it doesn't take a ton of money to put a book into production, right? You can write it and then revise it. Whereas like if you start production on a film, you're wasting money if you don't use that stuff in the film. So for him to just like jump into mm-hmm. it and, and have these like, it, I mean, he's absolutely a master to be able to pull all these movies off. There's one more thing that I felt like was a little convenient that happens here at the very, very end. Um, like I said, he just wanted to tie everything up in a nice little bow. Uh, Solomon's dog who had been with them along the whole way since they were at Solomon's place, uh, she, kind of barks at her and knows that she had been watching through this crystal ball and she sees this and she says, oh, okay, so everything's better now. Um, I'm going to tell the king to stop this war and there's not going to be any more wars, which is good because we don't want any more wars, but it just seems like a really, really easy way to wrap it up and have it in a nice typo. Yeah, and it makes the, you know, that Madame Sullivan like less of a villain a little bit. Like we kind of see that maybe she, you know, her motives weren't all bad. Um, but back to the kissing thing for just a moment. Sophie also kisses Calcifer, which is a weird scene. Like she kisses a fire demon. She doesn't it, she doesn't uh, touch it, it with her lips, un- right? She's like a little further away, but she definitely kisses it. I thought she pressed her lips against fire. the fire. That's what that's what it looked like to me. And this is another point of like, I, I mean, like as much as we're lauding Hayao Miyazaki, I mean, he is a man and he could potentially be falling into these pit traps. Uh, Sophie's, you know, uh, physical attention is given a lot of weight at the end of this at the end of this uh, novel, and her kissing everybody seems to be like the magic cure all. Yeah, I. I don't know how to feel about it because it's definitely it's definitely not the message that you would want to be sending out. You know, it's like that. Like it's I mean, it's it's an accidental thing. It's I guarantee you it's not something he thought about. I feel like it has something more to do with him trying to tie it up. And like you said, yeah, he probably wasn't thinking from the female gaze. He was it's it's mostly male gaze because he's a male. Yeah. So he male point of view, at least. So he's he's deciding on things based on his own male experience in the world so at the end of the day he felt like a kiss is a kiss could be seen as a lot could be seen as just a kiss but like you said it is her it is her feminine and her sexuality femininity and her sexuality that at the end of the day is is changing all of these things and all male characters that she's kissing who Mm -hmm. maybe have some sort of attraction to her you know, I don't know. It, it, like ultimately, like she should be kissing Hal. I get that. That's this is what this is about. Mm-hmm. Um, her kiss, you know, her kissing Calcifer is the one really that probably goes too far. And then Turniphead, like it's okay. I mean, like it's fun. It's he really is fine with her not having feelings back to him. Like really fine. He's just like okay, that's fine. And then um, I did want to say I thought it was funny that he like hops away on a stick, <laughs> um, like flies away on a stick. Yeah. I don't know. As since he's seen him as turnip head the whole movie, it was like a nice callback to that mm-hmm. 
and to where he like is he is still that that character so here at the end basically to wrap it all up a lot of the characters are in Hal's flying castle now Hal's moving flying castle that is yeah. uh flying through the sky and i think uh calcifer comes back and like you said she he gets a kiss from from sophie and they're all this like family that has come together and they all want to be together and markle kind of earlier in the film touches on it he he says there's a moment where he's like worried that she might leave at some point and he's like says that he loves her and that they're a family and she agrees and it, it this pays all of all of that off that takes place earlier in the film so there's a bonus feature where diana Wynne jones is uh talking to them about the movie and i thought it was really interesting and there was some some cool stuff given there but um, I also wanted to take a moment to read a quote that was um, shared with me on Facebook from uh, Danielle Barnett. And it was from this from a very similar interview, if not the same interview. And I'm just going to read it verbatim because I think it's a really interesting answer. So the question is, were you surprised by Hayao Miyazaki's vision of the castle and the characters of Howl's Moving Castle? Diana Wynne-Jones. I was surprised by Miyazaki's Moving Castle because I had not thought of the castle having feet. In the book I wrote, the castle is more like a hovercraft and floats an inch or so above the ground. But I am very fond of Miyazaki's castle. I have several models of it around the house. As for Hal and Sophie, both of them are gentler and more noble than the characters in my books. But I wasn't surprised by this. Movies are always different. I have several models of Hal and Sophie around the house too, and quite a few calcifers, one of which sits in the fireplace. That's awesome. I actually have a fireplace, so I'm buying a calcifer in the next week or so. <laughs> That'll be sweet. Yeah, man, and and I think it's cool to hear her acknowledge the differences in the characters, and you know she's fully aware, and and it's cool to it's cool to see that. And I just want to make sure we continue to give um, a, a big hat tip to her and and for for writing this source material and 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 make sure that she's credited. Absolutely, yeah. I feel like with with this film, her original vision does get. Um, a little forgotten other than the the title card she isn't really praised for this film you know i never hear anybody talk about her in conjunction with the film so i definitely want to give a lot of praise to her her novel and she did most of the heavy lifting here hayao miyazaki just kind of put his own spin on it and came in with the the filmmaking perspective i i feel like i'd be remiss to not say there are more novels that follow these characters so if you can't get enough how's moving castle and you enjoy the book, um, absolutely go check out. I think it's like two more books, uh, maybe more that are in this in the series about these characters. Um, so absolutely support support um, the author and, and check that out. Um, and uh, I think I think this should be a lot of fun if these are any indication. Definitely, I actually am thinking about continuing in, on in the series and checking the rest out. Yeah, that'd be cool. I think we ended up covering a lot of the general stuff in the beginning of this episode, so I think uh, this is about all I have to say. If you're if you're if you're finished, I think we're ready to call it on this project. Yeah, that's a wrap on Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah, so we mentioned it in our little ad, but just in case you missed it, next up we're going to do the book Nothing Less Forever, which is a incredibly forgettable name for a novel that inspired. Die Hard. Yes, the original 1980s Die Hard movie. Great Christmas movie. Yeah, ultimate Christmas movie, in my opinion. Uh, maybe I'll put a little poll out on social media or something about that, but uh, it should be a lot of fun. We're going to read the book, I think, in two parts, much like we did this novel, um, and then we'll release our movie episode for Die Hard uh, the week of Christmas. That's the plan. Yeah, definitely. So look forward to that, guys. 
yeah, I hope you'll come join us for that. Uh, we're, we'll, we'll be a little less family friendly when covering that movie, I think, but uh, it should be the same kind of deal here. And if you enjoyed this, hopefully you'll enjoy that as well. So we'd love to hear from you. And if you'd like to get in co uh, contact with us about Die Hard, we'd love to get your take on that movie. You can let us know how you think of it and whether or not it's a, a Christmas movie. And uh, especially if you happen to have read this, not, you know, Nothing Lasts Forever, get reach out to us because that's what we're going to be diving into. Um, you can do that by sending an email to ink2film at gmail.com. Um, just say hi. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and if you wanted to, you could reach out to us on social media as well. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, it's at ink to film on all of those. So any sort of feedback or anything you wanted to reach out and say to us, we're pretty active on there. Yeah, we have a lot of fun on there, and it's a good way to keep up with uh, our uh, you know our episodes as they come out. The best way to do that, though, is to subscribe. And uh, you subscribe, you you help us out. Um, and if you if you're enjoying all this, uh, the the other way you can help us out is to leave us a rating or a review. Um, both of those would be hugely appreciated. Help us to grow, and uh, you can support us and support this podcast. Um, reviews like this one from Mr. Bald Jesus, which comes to us from iTunes. Great concept with great people. Five stars. He also says Bugcatcher Alex loves it, which I don't really know what that means. But we're glad to have it, and we're happy to uh, hear about it. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. We appreciate it. So lastly, we just wanted to thank Audible for our Audible affiliate link. It's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And with that, you can help us out. And you actually get 30 free days and one free credit for any novel. They have a ton of audiobooks. So anything you want to read, go check it out. We also wanted to say thank you to Ross Bugden. Uh, we use his music from YouTube for our intro and outro music. Yeah, subscribe to his channel if you want to check out all the stuff he makes. Um, yeah, and lastly, I just want to say happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Hope you have fun with your family. Um, happy Thanksgiving to you, James. Happy Thanksgiving to you, Luke. All right, guys, happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you next week. All right, I'm Luke. And I'm James. See ya. <laughs>